0: You are listening to SALT's Teaching Social Justice Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Olympia Duhart with SALT's Teaching Social Justice Podcast, and today I'm joined by Carwina Wang from Indiana University, Maurer School of Law. Welcome.
0: Thank you, Olympia. I'm delighted to be here.
1: Let's start by you telling me uh, what you do at Indiana University and how long you've been there.
0: I am a clinical professor, and I've been at IU now for a little over 14 years. Currently, I am directing the Community Legal Clinic, which is our primary legal services clinic. It began before I got here as our primary family law clinic, and since I joined, it's become uh, more of a mixed bag in terms of civil litigation and community partnership practice.
1: What motivates you to do the clinical work is so exhausting and it's, it can be emotionally draining in some ways
0: right it is. I remember when I first became a clinician. I had already been um, a practicing lawyer for about ten years, I think by then, and thought I had a pretty good handle on on the emotional side of it. but then, when I was teaching. I, I knew about sort of vicarious trauma. I, I sort of called it tertiary trauma, right? It's like I'm used to handling on my own my mm. clients' trauma and my reactions to them. But now I had to process and help students handle their clients' trauma, their reactions to their trauma, and everything else. So that's, I think, part of why I spend so much time on that social and emotional learning. Mm -hmm. You know, again, they need to trust me. I need to trust them. I need to know how they're going to handle things, and they need to know how I will handle things. Uh, That's a huge part of the learning, and I think that's why I'm able to keep doing this. Mm -hmm. I I will say, over the summer, I had a very, very high-conflict, stressful divorce, Mm. And it was a case that I had inherited. It wasn't something that I think I necessarily would have picked up on my own. But I was taking over this case. And the clients were terribly entrenched on both sides. And there are kids in the middle, and there are students working on it and trying to understand you know, why do parents seem to be so entrenched? Why are they not paying attention to what their, their children's needs are? Um, everything that's going on, and I ended up modeling with them my own reactions and responses to this client, because he really did push a lot of my own buttons, (laughs) (laughs) and it happens, right, and students sort of think like, oh, it's my client. I'm not allowed to dislike their behaviors, or I'm not allowed to express an emotional reaction I have to this person, but I I take the opposite tack, sort of, I'm not their therapist, I'm not the client's therapist, I I am just uh, knowledgeable enough to be extremely dangerous as a pseudo-therapist, right, (laughs) completely (laughs) practicing without a license. But the little bit I wanted them to hear here was that it's better to acknowledge and work through your own emotional reactions to a client, especially when they are negative, so that you can keep working for them. And so we would talk about that. What was making it really hard to work with this client? What were the frustrations that we had? What were some of the buttons that he was pushing with us? How it was that we needed a team, in fact, to be able to work with him effectively, whether it was sometimes taking turns who was going to be the lead in a meeting, whether it was telling another person, you need to take a break from this client, go do something else. Now, go take care of yourself because you're not able to help this client or me right now, uh, even in like mediation or hearings. I I cannot right now focus on managing your reaction to the client while also trying to keep the client engaged in the process and keeping my own head clear so that I can advise and support the client. So it was an incredibly rich experience, mm-hmm. but it's one of those times again where the law is not at all the primary driver of anything going on in the family law yeah, context.
1: But that's such an important lawyering skill. I mean, really, that dealing with what you call tertiary trauma uh, is such a critical lawyering skill for for people who are going to do this kind of work for a long right. time.
0: Right? And, and I think again, I mean, the family law cases are often some of the best vehicle, certainly not the only vehicle, but the best vehicle for really feeling that emotional reaction and um, lack of preparation for lawyering. And that is, I think, why I'm in, going, to back, going back to one of your questions, in clinical teaching. It's that empathy piece. Mm. For me, law school is still so hyper-intellectualized. Um, it's not something that teaches the whole student, And it teaches students to think that when they go out to practice, their job is still to be a legal analyst. And that's the least of it. Yeah. Yeah. And legal analysis is one of the tools we use, but whether the law favors the client or not, there's so much more you have to deal with to help that client effectively and successfully. And so for me, clinical teaching has moved from being really interested in the more technical aspects of lawyering Mm -hmm. to preparing students to be human beings again. I tell my students, (laughs) when you come to clinic, our job actually is to turn us into human beings again, to understand empathy, to understand how we work with clients and with each other. And the point at which you are burnt out is probably because you've lost the ability to be empathy, empathetic with your yourself, with your clients, with your colleagues, all of that. And that's why you need a break. Mm-hmm. So to me, clinics is the social justice end of being human, interacting with clients as human beings, accepting them as human beings with all their faults and with all their... Um, <laughs> their beauty and values too yes. and when i can get to the point of with this difficult client understanding what causes his entrenchment what might have caused his particular viewpoints in terms of what's good for his kids and what he thinks about his now ex-spouse that's where i need to be so i can work with him And to not take personally when he gets upset that I am the messenger of bad news, Uh, even when I completely and utterly disagree with his position on something, that we can still find a place to communicate and really connect. That's what I'm looking for. And that's what I want the students to see. Mm -hmm. And that, for me, spreads out into sort of this whole anti-racism moment that we're in yet again, right? Another (laughs) another one of those. But that anti-racism really forces us to connect and to understand why this other person, the person we have othered as a society and sometimes, therefore, when each of us individually, is really our fellow human being, someone worthy of our trust, love, respect, and understanding, even or especially when we disagree with their behaviors, their specific values, or their, um, their political views too, right? And right. I think a lot of what happens is people think cultural competence means we're going to agree. I, I think people misunderstand what relativism means in that, point, in, that, in that perspective. It's that idea that if I am culturally competent, I'm supposed to accept and ag- agree with your views. And that's not the case. It's that I accept that these views are important to you from whatever your lived experience is, from whatever your culture teaches you. That doesn't mean I agree with it. I'm acknowledging it's important to you. And by acknowledging it's important to you, maybe I can figure out a way then to work with you at some deeper level or at some superficial level. This is like when I see on the progressive end of the world too, that we have become very, what I would call entrenched sometimes. Like we have our own litmus test for who is involved in the movement. Um, Uh Can you be um, pro-abortion and in the same movement, right? We say that's one of the key hallmarks of being a feminist these days. But when we were doing the Women's March, what happens to those people who, the women who were anti Trump but pro life? Are right. they allowed in or not? Why are they allowed in or not? Are we in danger of becoming too polarized on our end as well? And why? Mm-hmm. What is it that causes those women to have that view? Why is it important to them to believe that life begins at conception and that an abortion is, is wrong? And right. That and takes that says
1: back to the empathy piece, too, right. trying to think about other people's point of view
0: yes what
1: 's really powerful about what you 're talking about with your students and the the sort of difficult clients and the empathy piece and unveiling structural inequities is that it to me i 'm hearing that you 're using the really amazing power of narrative to sort of expose what these structural defects are right. around racism and and other
0: issues absolutely I think again we think of narrative as just the individual story but of course narrative doesn't include just the individual none of us lives in a (laughs) contextless world so we will talk about law and society (laughs) as part of the context (laughs) of the story it's the background right i mean if um, when i'm doing a disability um claim for example It's as much talking about them as, all right, the Social Security looks on this as a medical problem. You're broken somehow and medicine can't fix you anymore. So to to be eligible for this type of Social Security benefit, it's even with the best treatment. And by the way, we hope you're taking up following all the treatment. You're still damaged. You can't work. And we talk about how that is the lens we have to be able to work with because that's what the law is looking at. That's what the judges are trained on. But that is not what we want the claimant's experience of us and their own lives to be. It's not just them. Mm -hmm. You're a broken person. It's there's something wrong here. And it's also societal. Let's prepare the client to tell their story about what they find difficult to do, because that's what the judge needs to hear. But let's also help the judge understand what they can do and why, because that's what the client needs to hear as well as the judge.
1: Right, right. And
0: what is it that having Social Security benefits will do for this person in a broad context? Mm-hmm. That kind of piece. Or when we're talking about the story or how we're going to tell the testimony, let's talk about the, the client in different Um, environments and what's possible at home versus at work versus at school like why is this client able to function at home well it's because they've created an environment that is already accommodating right in that sense they have created a place where they feel hopefully safer um you know sometimes it means from the outside that they are not taking any risks outside a comfort zone right like Mm -hmm. if you have social anxiety um there are times in which you want to push yourself to go outside of your house and be with other people because that's one of the ways that you're managing your anxiety. But for a lot of our clients, they can't get to that point yet. So they manage at home because they see nobody. Right. right? Right. And so we have to talk about the environment that they've set up and why that might not show to a judge as clearly the difficulties they have when they are out in the public. Mm. And then we have to ask our clients to push themselves sometimes and record for us what's going on when they do go outside.
1: You what know, a great what are experience for your students. I'm just, uh, what a great experience for your students to be able to deal with these stories and then think about these bigger issues and then help humans and become human again themselves, as you say.
0: It is really hard. I, I think in some ways that the students who come to clinic know that they want some of this. They may not always be able to name it, and I actually don't feel at all capable of naming it either, (laughs) many times. (laughs) But they're looking for something different um, that reconnects what they're learning in the classroom with the practice of law, or they're feeling that they have lost some portion of themselves in the legal academy. And so they come to clinic wanting that. Mm-hmm. For me, then, the problem is building up that trust. And this is, again, part of that equity inclusion piece. We don't really have inclusion or belonging when there is no trust. Right. right? We can include people, but they don't feel the, – the imposter syndrome is all about not feeling that they are trusted and acknowledged and not trusting the people around them to value them. So it's about building trust. I mean, yesterday we were doing a class on identity. Um, And I borrowed this idea from uh, a wonderful colleague at Boston College, Evangeline Sarda. It's an identities exercise, and I've tweaked it to deal with the far less trusting environment of law school. But the idea is you think about your top five identities, and they can be cultural, social, role, whatever it is. And you then imagine yourself from, uh, for us, number five up to number one just as that, and then you think about yourself without it. And when you get to number one, your most closely held identity, you think about whether you could in fact give that up. Mm-hmm. Um, and for most people, it's really hard to, Obviously, I mean, that's why it's their number one held identity. We are not in the classroom in a space that's safe enough yet for all of us to share.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: I will share mine because I'm used to doing this now and I'm trusting. This is that Brene Brown vulnerability piece. For you. I, I'm trusting right. you to be able to handle my identities. Uh, although at the same time, I'm careful about what I'm willing to share with students. I mean, they are students after all. Right. <laughs> the <laughs> the boundaries sex. between being the teacher and the, and, and the student that, that should still stay in place. But I talk about what do they see in the identities that I share? Um, what, is, what might surprise them about what's not there? um how it is that intersectionality works for me in my top identity, which is right now advocate. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I'll tell you, I, I go advocate, cis, uh, straight, cis, female, teacher, outsider, and worrier. <laughs> <laughs> warrior is not some, not warrior, but worrier. <laughs> worrier. You know, like, as that I worry a lot. As that I'm anxious. <laughs> and actually how all of those come out as to why I am an advocate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so how I'm an outsider uh, as an immigrant, uh, having come over in the 1960s. How I'm an outsider within my family, um, in some ways, how I'm an outsider at the law school being a clinician, how mm. in a very, very white community of Bloomington, Indiana, I'm an outsider because people assume I'm, I'm an Asian immigrant from Asia who speaks some language, not English fluently, which is really wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I speak smatterings of many languages badly. <laughs> and that would include English, I think. But what that means for me, as a teacher to them, as students, as a lawyer, uh, how it plays out culturally. Because that's what I want to see, that we bring these identities into our work and how that helps me and hurts me when I'm trying to connect with my clients, too. Right, right. So I think hopefully today they were interested in the exercise. They didn't feel comfortable sharing, and I don't want to put them on the spot like that. But... I'm hoping that from their list, because they took it very seriously, we must have spent Mm -hmm. at least five to 10 minutes on this, um, thinking through their own identities, that they will be able to start bringing some of that more into our class discussions. Yeah,
1: what a great exercise. This has been a really, really incredible talk, too. So thank you so much for spending this time with us today.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me and I hope that the rest of your semester and the rest of the series goes well.
1: Thank you.